Greetings, art world. This is Kofi Forston for Noah Becker's White Heart Magazine's Art World. And today I'm talking to Terry Duffy, artist, visionary, and author. How are you, Terry? I'm fine, Kofi. Looking forward to talking to you. It's a pleasure to spend this time with you. I've had time to look at your book, The Vessel, and uh, it's, it's broadened my, my mind on, on your work as an artist. And uh, I guess everything with you sort of begins with your art piece, The Crucifix, known as Victim No Resurrection. Victim No Resurrection is an art piece you created as a reaction to the Tox Teth riots. You were in France at the time, and came back to Liverpool to see the aftermath of the Tox Teth riots. Can you please share with me what the Tox Teth riots were and what inspired you to create that crucifix? Well, in, in Britain, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a great deal of, uh, uh, what could you call it, disruption, rioting in the streets and so on and so forth. The economy was in a really bad state. Um, the, as far as I understand, there was a lot of racism about in the in the inner cities. But you know, the, I think the big thing was there was a lot of desperation. Unemployment was for young people was running at you know double figures, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent. So uh, what can people do? They um, they don't sit at home. Young people come out and they rise. Yeah, they make yeah. a statement. Yeah. Um... And and you you got back from France to see the aftermath. You were living on Hope Street at the time, next to a cathedral. What brought into your mind to create a crucifix to represent the victims of this riot? Well, uh, I was really shocked by by the riots. I was shocked by. I was very disturbed by maybe a better word that there were people out there destroying their city and my city. I mean, my studio is right in the center of it, you know. Um, my my studio is on, as you say, Hope Street, which is in between the two cathedrals. Liverpool has these two massive cathedrals, um, similar to New York, you know, like uh, St. John Divine. It's the Anglican one is similar in size to that. And... Um, it just seemed that there was a real inability uh, for people to actually answer uh, or come to a, a a positive outcome as to how you can actually please the rioters. How what can you actually do to make things better? And so I really was disturbed by it, and I thought I I spent a great deal of time in the studio just pondering how I could create an artwork the the reality here was i think which is interesting to to people uh, fellow artists and that is i was doing abstract art at the time i was very much inspired by the work of joseph boys and john cage and so on and so forth and so i was doing minimal abstraction and um i abstract art is okay it's beautiful, it's reflective, it's spiritual, or can be when it's good, um, but it doesn't actually make a statement. 
So I just thought there's people in the street out there risking their lives for what they for what they believe in. And what am I doing? I'm simply doing marks on a canvas. I'm not making a statement. So it was a extreme criticism of myself and my inability to actually be out there and riot. So what can I begin to say? So I actually thought that the, it seemed to me that there was a lack of uh, confidence and belief in our culture, in our government, and so on and so forth. And whilst I'd always, be, I've always been interested in alternative shapes for paintings. I'm not interested in rectangles predominantly or circles or so on. Um, I'm always interested in the shape. So it seemed to me that there were two really striking shapes that I could make for this painting. Don't forget, I don't know what I'm going to say at this point, but I decide that I think I'm very interested in the cross as a symbol of our um, sense of Christianity, if we can call it that, our faith in other people, what we do, what we, how we uh, help other people, how we create communities, you know, the Ten Commandments and all that sort of stuff. And then the other thing was the dollar sign. So I thought, is the dollar sign the big thing that disrupts is money the thing that really disrupts the culture? So as you're in New York, you probably find that quite interesting, really. It wasn't the, it, the dollar sign became the symbol for me of people's obsession with money and how that can destroy things or destroy communities. Anyway, I decided that the cross was the thing I wanted to create. And I'd been to see the, the Chimabui Cross at the National in London. Now, this was um, a cross that I think, again, was 14 foot high, which I think in, in America you have feet and inches as well, don't you? So you know what? You're not meters. No? No, not meters, no. No. So 40, you know what 14 foot high is. So it's the height of what we would call in this country a double-decker bus. So it's a pretty big thing. But what this painting was, was it, this was the painting that had been uh, seriously damaged during the floods in Florence. And because of that, part of and so on and so forth, uh, from the skin, and it looked the Christ on this cross looked like somebody had been through uh, as though an atomic bomb had gone off. So it was reminiscent of those photographic images we have seen from the results of Hiroshima. So they hadn't attempted to restore the painting beyond restoring what paint was on the canvas. So I was really struck by that as well. So when I got back, uh, sorry, I haven't answered your question about the toxic thing. The area 
where the riots were is just an area like Brooklyn is in New York. It's an area in Liverpool called Toxteth, uh, an amazing uh, area of very grand Victorian houses. But it has become, had become a ghetto. So it was predominantly black people lived there, mixed with students. A lot of young people, a high degree of unemployment. So that's the background to that. So anyway, I start on this cross and um, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be Christ on the cross. It evolved into being man, woman and child on the cross, that these were the victims of our culture. So I wasn't particularly interested in the rioters per se. I was more interested in people, the, the, the people who are the victims of what we decide to do as rioters or industrialists or, uh, you know, um, you know, think of Gaza right now, you know, the destruction, you know, think of the victims, how you cannot communicate that by doing an abstract. You can only achieve some message by actually being at least semi-figurative. Yeah. So it took me two years to paint it. And um, a lot of people came into the studio as painting it because we've got two cathedrals the bishops of each one would come in while I'm painting it, asking me questions, or would just, just sit there watching me. There was a monastery nearby and people would come in. Um, I didn't mind at all. You know, it was just really interesting to discuss it with them. Um, and I decided to call it victim no resurrection because resurrection is, fundament is fundamental to, um, you might say, any any religious teaching whether it's Jewish or Muslim or Christian or whatever, it's fundamental. So I, I've said, I'm saying by victim, no resurrection, that these people are suffering so much, they lo lose all hope of, of surviving unless you do something for them. Virtually... I would say within months of it being painted, these two guys from New York turned up at the studio. Um, they'd heard about me and the painting, wherever in London, and they'd come up to Liverpool. And um, I'd say within the year, it was, it was in St. John Divine in Harlem. Um, and it, and it, it circulated to various places after that. And to this day, it's still regarded as, uh, by people as a profound piece of work. Yeah, what's fascinating about it also is that um, this art piece was kept in storage for quite some time. And um, when 9-11 occurred, there was um, a bit of an awareness of kind of bringing it back into the fold to represent other victims. And um, it's interesting how it started off as something you did 
with the means of um, being influenced by the Toxteth riots, but it took on a life of its own, um, especially with 9-11. Um, to talk a bit about how 9-11 brought the art piece back into the fold. Yeah. Um, as you say, it it was over in New York and it was taken down from St. John Divine. This was in the late 80s and basically went into storage. And as all artists know, storage is a problem. You know, you create paintings, they don't all sell. And so you create your own storage problem. So laughingly, I was quite happy. This enormous thing was in in storage in America and being looked after. So I moved on, um, went back to doing some abstracts again. Yeah. Um, did other things during the mid eighties. Uh, I did a series of works on uh, about women and about uh, uh, homosexuality uh, and so on and so forth. I was dealing with those things in the mid eighties, and a book was published at the time called uh, "Hairy Feeling Dress," and so we're going right through the nineties until. Until 9-11 happens. And again, it's a profound ex experience for everybody. It rocks the ground beneath our feet. It shakes it. And I actually started to begin to talk to, to some of the churches in New York about could it come back there? I'd be really interested in if it was... Uh, uh, might be brought over there again for commemoration, but nothing really happened. I think one of the priests said it was too soon. It was the wound was too open for us to talk about conciliation and reconciliation. So fine, you know, I'm not pushing these works on anybody. It's it's part of a, a dialogue. Anyway, um, 2008, Liverpool was chosen as the European capital of culture. And at this point, around about 2006, we know about this. And people start asking me about... Um, oh, no, wait, no, change my mind. What was interesting was, after 9-11... People seem to start using the word reconciliation. And I felt we didn't really use that word before. But it was about reconciling this terrible thing that had happened to West in Western culture by terrorist groups in the Middle East and so on and so forth. So how can we reconcile that? And this word just kept on coming back to me. You'd hear it all the time, reconciliation. How can we reconcile these things? So, um, so by about 2000, so people kept, on, people kept on saying to me, they go, didn't you want to do a painting to do with victims? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. But that's uh, that was a long time ago. And then somebody else would say, 
didn't you want to do a painting? What, what was it like? And so as the years went by, we got to about 2006, um, it was my wife, really, who had always loved the painting. And she said, you're just going to have to get it back here. You know, it's a really important painting. You should bring it back. So I got in touch with the gallerists. They, they didn't have a gallery anymore. They lived out in uh, Hartford in Connecticut. And I'd say within two weeks, it was back here. Um, this enormous rolled up canvas and these stretches and so on and so forth. Um, and as you've said to me before, when we were making some notes, um, it wasn't a fashion victim. Um, when I unrolled, and I was really nervous about unrolling it because I thought, first of all, it could be in a terrible state of disrepair. You know, the paint could be dropping off. But it also might be completely out of date and not relevant. And whilst other people might want it, if it doesn't work for me, that's it. At the end of the day, you have to be your own editor. You have to make your own quality uh, quality decisions. So anyway, I unrolled, I had the courage. One day I had the courage, unrolled it, and instantly knew it wasn't a fashion victim. And it really did communicate. You know, you look at a painting and you know in the first second whether something works or not whether something is right. And it's had all the power and authority and uh, compassion for victims that I'd hoped it always had. So I was seeing the, um, uh, for some other work, my monuments paintings, I was seeing the Dean of uh, Liverpool Anglican Cathedral about showing the monuments paintings at the cathedral. But I thought, I know what I'll do is I'll take a photograph of it and show it to him, see what he thinks. I've never really, I've never really asked that question before. I haven't seen this painting for 20 odd years. So let's get, you know, first hand response. Anyway, so we go through the work I wanted to share with us and then the victim of a resurrection photograph pops out. And he said, what's that? I explained to him what it was. He said, can we have it? Can we have it? Within two weeks, it's hanging up in this magnificent cathedral. You know, the second or third largest in the world, this cathedral is. You know, it's, it's vast. And it's got pride of place in this cathedral. And... It becomes a big contentious issue, this painting. Over the coming weeks, people want me to do talks about it, want to explain it, and so on and so forth. And the person who, who I was speaking to there was the Dean of the Anglican Cathedral. And his name is Justin Welby. Now, Justin Welby, uh, 10 years, less than 10 years later, became the Archbishop of Canterbury. So I've now got this link with, you know, the prime, uh, what do you call this? Uh, the leader of the Anglican Church in, 
in Britain and around the world. Yeah. So, um, and he tells me, I gave him a print. I actually gave him a print of it as a sort of thank you. And he said it's the only uh, piece of work he has in his own private chapel. And every day it reminds him of what his job is, and that is to protect victims. So, you know, you get these amazing people saying profound things about your work. Yeah. So I don't know if that's explained a little bit more about it. Yeah, it, it really did. Um, and um, I am very much interested also in 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 the depth of the uh, response um, people gave to this particular art piece. Um, talk to me about the trips around the world in places like um, Dresden, Germany, and Cape Town, where this art yeah, piece sorry, was presented. Uh, yeah, I haven't explained that. So as you said earlier, this this was a piece of work, uh, and a, a large piece of work that was making a comment about uh, the riots in Toxted in 1981. But now it was on a world stage. And it was completely relevant to the issues today. So, and I suppose that's okay, isn't it? We, as artists, we, we create these things and we don't know how they're going to be taken up by the public. We don't know that. We, we, can't, we can't even try to predict that. You know, if you're an artist working alone in a studio, you know, I'm confronted by enormous canvas right now, which I've got to paint for the uh, Aborigines in Australia. And I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with it. You know, it's like, there it is. I'm looking at straight at it now. And what is that going to be like in six months' time, that empty canvas? And what is going to happen to us? Because it will be given to people and they will decide whether it's any good or not and whether it's relevant to them. So those things are fascinating, but the only thing you can do as an artist is do your best. Try and go beyond your reach. Every piece of work I do, like these commissions, I want them to be a masterpiece. So your value judgment mightn't be that. You might say, it's a load of rubbish. But if I try to create the best things, best thing I can do, my only hope is that it will communicate with you. Because down deep, we're all the same. Our inner selves are all the same. It doesn't matter what color we are, it doesn't matter what religion we are, so on and so forth. We're all human beings. So if I can do my best as a human being, maybe it will communicate with you. And obviously, it, it's amazing. To me, it's amazing that 10, 20 years later, 30 years later, People are asking me to do these amazing pieces of, you know, these people who have suffered. You know, I, I'm not suffering. 
I'm just an artist, yeah, who tries to interpret, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does, it does. I keep it, losing uh, the thread of your question. It's okay. I love, I love, I love the... But I'm getting carries away. I love the flow <laughs> and uh, the charm with which you're expressing these deep, deep and uh, thought out um, oh, thank you. means of um, expression. Uh, you mentioned Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he commissioned you to do um, one of the copes, the Australian indigenous cope. And uh, it takes me back to your cope paintings. Um, these were these uh, large um, scale paintings. Um, uh, were they originally a means of reconciliation between Coventry and Dresden? Yes. And, uh... Sorry. Yeah. I, I lost the thread of what you said before. Yeah. So, so. The victim of resurrection painting is in the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool. And all of a sudden, I'm getting phone calls from people, getting phone calls from people in uh, Coventry, uh, London, and, uh, and so on and so forth. They, they, want, they want this painting to be shown in their churches, in their cathedrals. And one of them was... Um, Coventry Cathedral, and every year they commemorate the uh, the bombings of the two cities. So during the Second World War, uh, the Germans bombed uh, Coventry to complete destruction. And at the end of the war, the British bombed Dresden. So every year they meet to reconcile this thing. And they wanted it, they wanted this painting, Victim of Resurrection, to be at the center of a month long um, uh, discussion, debate, creative interpretation, uh, you know, music, drama, um, all sorts of things. But they wanted Victim of Resurrection at the center of this work. And it's like, I mean, imagine you're the artist. Somebody wants, and they want you to stand up in front of 2,000 people at the cathedral and for you to tell them about the painting, you know, while there's an orchestra playing in the background. You know, it, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, and it can only spare you on to make other things. So after that, um, and then it went to Dresden. And then I thought, I'll take you on to the Coke paintings now. So um, if there's one thing you need to see is you need to see the vestments at the Macarena Museum in Seville in Spain. They are the most beautiful handmade uh, vestments and they're called copes. And the original, sh the, the word probably comes from the word cape. It's simply a very large semicircle of fabric I think it was also, so it's not tailored. So the person puts this cope or cape over around them. Uh, but it also means it can be hung flat because the amount of people that have worked on these vestments using gold, silk, and uh, I mean, they take years to create them. Yeah. And 
I was really struck by this. And then when I'd been to Coventry and then I'd been to Dresden, and I thought, I was doing this painting again, I was doing this cope shaped painting. And when I'd finished it, I thought, I know what I'll do. If I slice it right down the middle, don't forget this is a painting that's 10 or 12 feet high and about 10 feet across. If I slice it down the middle, give half to Dresden, half to Coventry. So these are the two sides of the story. If you come together, you will see the full story. That was my idea. That was the concept. But it never actually was separated. The minute I did it and I sent some images out to people, they wanted them straight away. So it first of all went to Coventry, then it went to Dresden. But then I get a phone call from Archbishop Desmond Tutu's office in Cape Town. No, sorry, I've missed the bit out, haven't I? The Bishop of Coventry, when he saw it, said, it's a shame I can't wear it. And so for the next year or so, I went through a process of trying to solve that question. Because obviously you can't wear a painting. It wouldn't last very long. But could I possibly get a vestment made? And I know a lot of people, you know. And so it just seemed to happen. I knew somebody, I knew somebody that knew all about vestments and about copes and how you make them. So I set them up in the studio and we created this wonderful garment. And it was worn by the Bishop of Coventry. Uh, again, it's got to be blessed. So you, you're blessing this artwork created by an artist that hasn't, this wasn't commissioned. This was a self-motivated piece of work like Victor Mirror Resurrection was. Because I've never really been driven by the... Uh, the money, it's a, to me, the priority is expressing this humanity. Anyway, I then get a phone call from um, South Africa. Could I come to South Africa and discuss with them um, making an anti... It's, it'll be 30 years since apartheid, and they'd like a vestment that commemorated that. Um, so, you know, they paid for me to go there and met with Desmond Tutu and we talked for hours over breakfast. And um, as you know, you've read the book, you know, he was an amazing character and, and it was a very profound experience, you know. Um, and then others have followed since, you know. It was a, there was a major thing called the Windrush uh, vestment in Britain. That's a Windrush is, is a symbolic uh, event. And that was to do with the Jamaican people, the West, uh, West, Indian, yeah, West Indian people who came to Britain during the 1950s uh, in the post-war period uh, to work on, on the buses and then the hospitals and so on and so forth. And um, again, that was, you know, the black community asking me, the white bloke, to create 
disvestment for them. And um, I, I, it was me that pointed at my skin and went, isn't there an issue here? Um, why are you ask? Why are you basically asking me? You know, you should be doing it. You isn't it right for you to do your own? Because this is, this is uh, your equality. This is you shouting for equality. And they said, "Oh no, 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 Terry, you're the guy. You're the artist that makes copes." So okay, fine, fine. Um, and since then, there's been others. Um, there was the first World War. Uh, commemoration vestment and that was fascinating because I found out about how American black American GIs were badly treated during the second uh, the first world war yeah they were sent to the front they were underpaid so you hear about these when you look into the history you know I do a lot of research before I do do a do the vestments or a, a painting you know you know, this one I'm looking at right now, which I was explaining to you, I've been researching this for, for six months now, reading every book about Aboriginal history, watching all the documentaries on YouTube and so on and so forth. Yeah. And um, I only just feel as though I can begin to touch the canvas with some paint because we're dealing with people's lives here. We're dealing with the destruction of people's lives, communities, nations. Yeah. It's it's profound. Yeah. And I have the honor to be asked to do it. And people don't even give me instruction. <laughs> they don't say what they want. <laughs> so maybe I'm trusted. <laughs> they must trust me that I'll do something that's acceptable. <laughs> I don't know. You know, to me, the to, to me the main thing is is it's it's not getting the feedback from the church. It's getting the feedback from my Aboriginal friends in Australia um, about what they think. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm getting some amazing emails now from people. And, yeah, I'd love to read one too, it's great. I've got one this morning, just before from uh, what you call Uncle Ray, because the elders in Australia call uncles or aunties, yeah. but this is the Reverend Ray Minicon, and he has a, a church in Sydney in Australia. And I'd written a poem about um, about the the situation that or, or the way the Aborigines were treated, and I got this amazing email back from which is great. Anyway, what more can I tell you? Yeah, you know something. I'm also interested in other commissions you've had. I I referenced the ICC Truth and Justice Robe, which is. Not, oh, yeah. yeah, that that is interesting because the ICC is almost relative to our modern day and what's going on right now with uh, Gaza. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the ICC Truth and Justice Robe. Okay. Um, in fact, the launch of that is going to be in March at Cambridge University. So uh, they've, they've got a book published uh, to do with all the different 
people that were doing research on the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the they felt as though uh, the International Criminal Court wasn't dealing with these uh, uh, what you call it, autocrats, these leaders who were basically uh, creating genocide in various countries. So anyway, again, they had, uh, I had a phone call from somebody at Liverpool University saying, would I be interested in creating a vestment or a, a robe for the judges? Not that they'd probably ever wear it, um, but as a sim symbolic thing. And they were talking about the aesthetics of international law. And I actually thought they were joking, first of all, you know, because I didn't really understand how international law could have aesthetics. But they were pretty sure I was the person that should do it. So, um, you know, uh, I had a go. And um, it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, say, I don't make the vestments. They then go to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Your partner, your collaborator. Yeah. Rather. I, have, I have a number of collaborators. They're all great. You know, they love doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of, obviously, we hear about the International Criminal Courts all the time, don't we? Particularly you know, at the moment with Gaza and Israel. Um, you know, it, it's. I say international law is not my um, it's not my scene, but um, I did my best, and um, it now exists, and it has been written about. So we will see. We will see what happens in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. As I said to you before, you can't predict that. Right. 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 I'm very much interested in in talking about your your painting process. Um, there are certain facets to what you do as a painter. I think about the figurative versus the abstract. Your earlier attempts at painting as opposed to where you are now with painting. Um, the androgyny of the figure. Uh, you talk about how men are a result of female birth. So the figures in your painting have this androgynous look to them. And then there's the two-dimensional space of the canvas and tapping into the subconscious. Talk to me about these aspects, the figurative versus the abstract to, to start. Um, what are your thoughts on the figurative? What's more important to you, the figurative or the abstract? I, I honestly don't think one's more important than the other. I love doing my abstracts and they are they are my reflective things. You know, people say to me, uh, you know, as an artist, you know, oh, you're an artist, are you? Uh, what do you do? And you feel like saying to them, have you got half an hour to spare? You know, um, but, you know, I've now decided it comes in. I go, it's basically, there. Are, I do two types of work. And that is I do abstracts because they're about line, form, shape, colour, uh, they're, they're about the spiritual it's about the subconscious coming out it, they're very um, inspiring pieces aesthetically um, and then there's the causational work so there is a cause behind it so 
I'm constantly, um, you know, just listen to the news. You only got to listen to the news this evening. And there'll be something in there that you'll be shocked by, you know. And so what do you do about it? Do you do something? So if it's something that really moves me, or as in recently, um, it's be, these things have become commissions, you know. Um, these are just amazing, challenging situations. So what I try to do is get the abstract to work with the figurative. So underlying, so the first stage in the process of these, you might, let's call them major works, these, uh, these vestments, the outcome is the vestment. The first stage is the painting. Because the vestment isn't a painting. It's, it's a montage that's printed on silk and made into a vestment. But in front of me is that big canvas. And at the center, of, in the center of this big rectangle is the semicircle that will be the vestment. So at the moment, I'm looking at this big semicircle floating in this rectangle. I can spend months just looking at that until one day I've got enough in my mind confidence about what I'm dealing with that I can begin to express it. I mean, I could, I could have done something on that canvas a month ago. But what would be the point? I, I've got to know what I'm doing. I've got to know what I feel about it. It's got to be built into me. It's got to be in my subconscious that I really feel for those things. Yeah, And it's taken me, you know, the Aboriginal situation is, I didn't know hardly anything about it. Other than what we all know, you know. But I feel as though I know quite a lot now. And so I ended up, so poetry is quite an interesting thing. So it's an interesting process because when you find the words, you can begin to create visuals. So you think of eagles flying and, and the way faces are painted and the way song lines what what are song lines in you know the way people can walk aborigines can walk right across australia through the song lines and how they communicate and so on and so forth and it's i feel as though i can begin it quite soon not tomorrow in a couple of weeks i'll feel as though and i've got this amazing response about the poem so i feel as though i must be getting somewhere yeah I don't think I answered your question there, but there you go. No, I get a full sense of what you're trying to say here. <laughs> I love taking this trip with you. It's a beautiful trip. It's like uh, we're on the Caspian Sea or something, you know, <laughs> with the sun shining and uh, a nice drink. In oh, the I can see the sun on your face. Yes. I, uh... <laughs> it's bloody miserable here. <laughs> and, the, and the light is going as well. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, as far as your paintings, um, 
talk to me about your standing stone paintings, these sculptural paintings, um, which were part of a monument installation. Yeah, they ended up at the Venice Biennale, yeah, um, around about 2011, I think it was. So, um, I don't know how to really talk about them. It's just this great sort of, they've got, they've got a lot to do, the shape of them's got to do with, I've got a lot to do with the human form, but I've always been interested in translucency, so that when you when you're looking at one of my paintings, whether it's abstract or figurative or semi-figurative, you're you are actually in the painting. That the painting you are interacting with that painting. To me, that's absolutely crucial. If I can get you to enter into the into the aesthetics and message the narrative of the painting, then I've achieved something, you know? Um, and that is absolutely, that's fundamental to my work, is the translucency, the openness. So uh, I can't really, again, the monuments paintings are uh, in the book and, uh, I say I'm dealing with something else right now. So, uh, but uh, it was an honor for them to be in uh, in Venice, which was superb. Yeah, um, I I think about your paintings, and uh, I think of reflections on the human condition, culture, politics, the world at a crisis point. So, yeah, what you said is quite true. Being drawn into the painting and almost being a part of the whole spectrum. Um, I think about also the paintings you did for the Vadre. Talk to me about that. I found that very interesting. The that was a Vadre. Yeah, the volcanic hill in North Wales. Yeah, no, that's... Um, I don't know if you... Do you know Wales in America? Because it's a tiny country, but it's it's part of Great Britain. And um, if I look out of my studio, I can see the hills in Wales. Yeah, And just last weekend, there was... You know, they're the nearest mountains I can go to. They're only an hour away. And you may have heard of Snowdonia and so on. Right. And they're nothing in comparison to the Rockies and so on and so forth. But, you know, they're ours. And they've got an incredible amount of history going back thousands of years. Anyway, I used to go to this small place, stay over at a, a sort of uh, holiday cottage and a studio there. Um and for many years, I used to go go there. And there's a bit of a hill at this village called Degamwi. And uh, how can I put it? It's a really strange hill. It's a funny shape. And I've always thought it was an odd shape. Anyway, whenever I go there, I always go walk up. It's not very high, a few hundred feet and you'd sit on the top and you've got these magnificent views. And um, I always thought it'd be a wonderful place to have a castle. And because you've got these magnificent views over the rivers coming into Wales and, and so on. Anyway, some years go by and I hadn't been there. And I think this must have been about four or five years ago. And this time I walked up there and there was a sign. Some touristy thing had been done to tell you all about this hill and there'd been a castle there 
and in 600 and something, you know, 600, there'd been a castle on that hill. And I was just struck by this. And, it, and the hill was called the Vardra. Because I did, again, did some research on it. I thought, why is it called the Vardra? That's a really strange name. If you go onto Google, there's nothing else called the Vardra. It sounds a bit sort of Greek or Roman, the Vardra. You know? Anyway, so I looked into this and found that that was the original Welsh name of this hill. Okay. But everything around it was influenced by, oh, it was influenced by uh, English. Anyway, the more I looked into this, I found that the spelling of the Vardra, that was the, V-A-R-D-R-A, -R -R Vardra, was the English interpretation of E. Fadra, which was the Welsh. So being the person I am, the more I looked into this, the more I got into the colonization of Wales by the Anglo-Saxons, uh, by the Normans. You know, if you know your British history, Anglo-Saxons, Normans and the way, the indigenous people of Britain were the Welsh, or the Britannics, I think they were called. And they were driven over these mountains into this place we call Wales. And these are Celts. You've heard of Celts, right? Celts, yeah, of course. Yeah. So these were Celts, right? And these had connections with Spain and Portugal and northern France and so on and so forth. So as I do, I start really going into the into the culture of it and and in a way it's it has really strong similarities with with aborigines in australia because what we do is we the the people in power invade countries and they try to eradicate the culture so in Wales, for example, all the children were forced to speak English, not Welsh. And they were punished if they spoke Welsh, seriously punished if they continued. And they did this in Ireland. If you think of the, the Irish famine in the 1850s, you know, these, I don't know how much you know in America, you know, but these are big things in Britain, you know. Because, you know, we're, we all come from the Welsh or the Irish or the Scottish. You know? um, and so it's it's not that long ago. You know, 1850s, my great, great grandfather was had to leave Ireland because of starvation, you know. And the starvation was caused by people in power trying to get rid of them. It, people refer to it as being genocide. Let's get rid, let's get these poor people 
these smelly people off the land. Yeah. And let's make make nice pastures for ourselves and we can all make plenty of money. Yeah. And that's what happened in Australia and it's happened in, in the US and it's happened in Canada because, you know, I've got the Can Canadian investment as well to create, yeah. When I eventually uh, meet up with the tribal chiefs, which I think is going to happen quite soon. So the Vajra, yeah, become this um, a fascinating tale of colonization. And luckily, the Welsh, like the Aborigines and like the, the First Nation people in America, have turned it around and have kept the culture and they've kept the language and they're trying to begin to influence things, you know. Um, you know, now we've got movies, you know, all about it. You know, the recent film with, uh, I've even forgotten the title of it, you know, but... Uh, you know the movie I mean. <laughs> what, what, what movie are you talking about? You know the movie Killing of uh, what is it called? Oh yeah, the Flower Moon. Yeah, the Flower Moon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, there you go. That's. Uh... Speaking of films, uh, yeah. tell me how you got your name attached to the film Mulika, which was an official selection of the Sundance Film Festival last year um, by a Congolese filmmaker. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, um, Mesha. Yeah. Um, Mesha, Mesha. Yeah, I, a friend of mine. Um, a friend of mine is a filmmaker. Was actually in the Congo, and he started to meet up with other people, sort of, uh, you know, African filmmakers, and they needed some money. You know, he just said, "Look, have I got some money to spare?" I didn't particularly have much money to spare, but um, I said, "How much do you want?" They went. We could do lots with you know two hundred and fifty pounds, which is what three hundred. It's probably not more than three hundred dollars, you know. Uh, three hundred fifty dollars, man. No, I don't even think it's that. You know, the value of the pound has definitely gone down in recent years. Um, and I said, "Well, show me what he's got." And what I really loved about the film, the the roughs that I was sent, it was like art school stuff, you know. It's like when you're at art school, you make do with things. It had a real roughness about it. And, and that really, I really liked that. You know, it wasn't, you know, uh, some mega film made in Hollywood, for God's sake, you know. This was something where for £250, they could really make something of it. So I let them have it. And uh, it was quite funny that I even got a mention because um, I wasn't expecting anything. Um, but it went to various film festivals and even ended up at the Sundance Film Festival um, in America and was applauded there. And I think Meisha actually got a residency out of it at Sundance. So, um, in fact, um, I did get an invite to go to Sundance and instead of uh i i gave him the money to go instead of me i thought because he couldn't afford to go from the congo so um i i gave him enough money to contribute to him going there which was 
which seems to me far more relevant. Yeah. But it was nice to get mentioned. Yeah. Terry, what's what's fascinating about you overall as a as a man, as an artist, as a visionary, is that you give of yourself to others. And I think about being you're being a chair of the uh, the BADA, the British Art and Design Association, uh, because you play the role of the artist, as we are all struggling artists, but you're also a man behind the scenes. Um, tell me about wearing those dual hats of being the artist and also being a man behind the scenes and making it possible for those who are underrepresented, like Maisha, for example, to get a step up in the art realm. Talk to me about the, being the chair of the British Art and Design Association. Well, the British Art and Design Association, um, it sounds very grand, but it's, it's not at all. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's, you know, 10, 20 uh, like-minded people around Britain. And we meet every few months and now we meet by Zoom and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, we try to help artists um, by advising them or encouraging them or whatever. But the way it started was, as I'd explained in uh, with Victim of Resurrection, it goes right back to that. The, by the mid-80s, Liverpool was so depressed. I think Margaret Thatcher had quoted as saying, you should lock the door on Liverpool and throw away the king. That's how bad it was. And Liverpool people have always been a thorn in the side of politicians because they're always willing to say what they feel. Yeah. That's why I loved it in New York. It was great. When I visited New York, I absolutely loved it because everybody's outspoken and they tell you what they think. Yeah. And it's like that in Liverpool. Everybody in Liverpool's got an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And don't forget, yeah, millions of people have ended up in New York because they went via Liverpool. Yeah. You know, that was the port that everybody went to. Anyway, so we've got this really depressed situation about 1985 in Liverpool. And I'm really doing my best as a, an art lecturer at the local art school, uh, again, to try and help these kids, these loads of creative kids, uh, you know, 18-year-olds. And um, Liverpool's full of creativity, poets, musicians. I mean, you know, it created the Beatles, for God's sake, yeah. Um, and I couldn't get any money from the arts organisations and their excuse was that they thought there wasn't enough talent in Liverpool, you know, which is just outrageous. But this shows you the disconnect between people in the people on the street and administrators, yeah, that they've got their nice offices somewhere in a nice new building, and they're being paid X a month to administer the art fund, but they don't really know what's going on. So with my own money, I went and rented a 10,000 square feet building and told lots of friends, fellow artists, and within 
within a very short time. This was a functioning creative studio complex. Within a year, there must have been anything up to 100 artists, designers, photographers, filmmakers, jewelers, textile designers, fashion designers, sculptors working from this building, you know? And I would get phone calls from London, from magazines saying, can we come and do an article on you? Yeah, on this plan. The house that Duffy built used to kill. <laughs> so um yeah. It was it was about there was two things really. It was about creating something that could change things. And it was also if there was a selfishness, it was about I want to really be in a creative community. So is it possible to create this community in this building? And with all these different friends I had, we created this community. So, you know, we'd fall out of our studios into the local pub of a night and, and do things. And we'd have fashion shows and we'd have film shows and, you know, famous bands would play in the basement, like the Smiths and all sorts of things. You know, it's, it was great. Yeah. So, you know, if I hadn't, have, you know, my, my wife was great. You know, she said, if you don't do it, you'll always regret it. You know, but it was a, there was a bad patch because I'd really overstretched myself financially. It was, I didn't sleep a lot for a few months <laughs> until the rent started coming in and people started paying for their studio spaces. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a lot of this information can be found in, in the wonderful book, The Vessel. Um, and if we can wrap all of this up, talk to me about the book. What brought up um, the idea to write this book? Because it really encapsulates all that we've talked about for the past hour. And then some more ideas about um, the mind of the artist, how you went from your parents' house as a young boy and the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, which was very influential um, to you. Um, the idea of the art games at the Air Gallery, your heroes, Joseph Boys, Gustav Metzger, John Cage, and ending up in a studio where you come to terms with the idea of the vessel. Share with me that idea behind writing the book, The Vessel. Well, you know, you can blame COVID for, for the book. Yeah. Um, I, we, you know, we got locked down. And I've always wanted to tell this story. And I'm I'm not a writer. I'm an artist. I, I deal with visuals. And so I'd approached over the years various writers. And for some reason, you know, people have written books about art and stuff. And it never felt right. You know, and people have ghost writers and all sorts of things. And it never quite worked out and anyway COVID happens and I'm in my studio and I'm right on the beach I, I'm in my studio is the old lifeboat house on, on the beach and uh, I look out across the Irish Sea and you know I can't complain can I I just I've just got this fantastic place to uh, to sit there and I thought come on Terry write it you've got to write this book you've got time now to write it so 
you know, exhibitions and things had been cancelled. So I had all this time on my hands. And so I started within about a couple of weeks, I'd I'd written eight to 10,000 words and gave it to some of my friends to get a response. And they were going, oh, this is great. This is great. Do this. Do it. Yeah, great. So um, I just then thought, right, what do I need to write? And I needed a beginning, an end, and the middle, and so on and so forth. And within, I would say, six months, I'd written 100,000 words. And I got an editor to work on it, but people kept on saying, no, Terry's really good. I could change a few things. Your grammar's not very good, you know, because I did go to art school. You know, um, you know, I, you, you can tell me anything about my grammar, and I'll quite happily just take it on board. You know, because I don't feel confident about it. But I can tell a story. You know? So um, I'm so pleased I wrote it. You know, but there'll be further additions because. Uh, yeah, I'm now involved in in other projects and setting up a. Can I tell you about the Hillbury Island project? Sure. You don't know about the Hillbury no, I don't. Island. I don't know much about that at all. No, I don't. Right. So, out of my window, I can see this island in the estuary, and it's an island that's maybe. Uh, maybe a quarter of a mile long, maybe a bit longer. And at the beginning of COVID, I went out there with the dog, Reggie. And it was during lockdown, and I'm the only person. So when the tide goes out, you can get to the island, is the point. So I'm on the island, and I'm doing some drawings of the houses. But the thing is with me, if I see some semi-derelict buildings, I always see an opportunity to create studio spaces for artists, right? Because that's what I've always done, because I'm always interested in creating communities. And um, so I'm sitting there with the dog doing this, I'm looking at these buildings, which I've never really looked at before, because I've never had lots of time on the island. And I think, I wonder if I could turn these into studios, who do I need to speak to? Anyway, this is, as you know, the beginning of COVID, which is, what, nearly three years ago, about this time. No, yeah, approximately this time, three years ago. And um, I keep talking to various people. And I'm going, and I know there's a bird sanctuary on the island as well. So I said, first person I saw, I said, why can't? I'm really interested in setting up a centre for the arts and sciences on Hillbury Island. And everybody I've spoken to just said, that's a fantastic idea. You know, how can we make this happen? And so hopefully this summer, we've achieved enough money to set up this centre for our arts and science and sustainability. All the things out there. This is an island that in Victorian times would have had a small population on it of uh, seafarers and things. But all that has fallen apart and there's no water 
there's no way of creating electricity or gas or sewer there's no sewerage system and um and now there's going to be so i've had all these scientists out there and we're talking about an observatory and we're talking i've been talking to marine biologists and and it's great you know it's another it's a thing you know which uh but it's not just me anymore it's it's creating this group of people that, and maybe I'm just a leader for a while. Yeah, you know, I'm just the person with the idea, and you've just got to look for other people that want to be inspired. Yeah, you know? I think that's and what's interesting. That's what's interesting. They might get the sleeves rolled up. You know. Yeah, it goes beyond just being the artist in the studio. It's about expanding. It's about you know, and I think that's what social media did for us for a while. We were able to communicate with other people from other parts of the world in terms of positivity, in terms of interconnectivity, in terms of sharing ideas. And that is yeah. sim simply what you do as a man, as an artist. You're able to expand your wings and include those who may not be fortunate, but at the same time, working, with, working, working rather with those who are empowered and creating all this magic, all this excitement. And uh, I wish you luck on the project. Terry, it's been quite an exciting time for me to have the space to talk to you. Yes, thank you um, it's been quite wonderful. And, and uh, Reggie's and say, saying goodbye then. Say, say hello and goodbye to Reggie for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, no, that's been brilliant. Lovely talking yeah. to you. Thank you so and, much. Uh, if you need to speak again, just give me a call. I will, Terry. Thank and, you so um, much. And um, peace be with you and to all your listeners. Thank you, Terry. Take care. Bye-bye.